Chapter One of the Mystery of the Pinckney Draft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mystery of the Pinckney Draft by Charles C. Knott. Chapter One Statement of the Case. When I began the studies which have resulted in this book, someone asked me what I was doing, and I chanced to answer that I was looking into the mystery of Pinckney's draft of the Constitution. Afterwards I received a letter from Professor J. Franklin Jameson, in which he spoke of the uncertainties attending the draft as mysteries. And later I found that Jared Sparks, back in 1831, had been engaged in the same study and had used the same term. With two such scholars as Professor Jameson and Mr. Sparks, recognizing the knowable but unknown element which we call mystery, I retained the term which I chanced to use. A true mystery, instead of ending discussion, calls for more. What constitutes a mystery is the unknown which is certainly connected with the known. A mystery, therefore, is unfinished knowledge. Dr. William Hanna Thompson, Brain and Personality, page 278. At the opening of the convention which framed the Constitution, Charles Pinckney of South Carolina presented a draft of a Constitution that was referred to the Committee of the Whole. This draft was not a subject of notice or comment by any speaker or writer of the time. One might infer from the silence of all records and writers that it was the fanciful scheme of an individual which exercised no influence whatever on the convention and did not contribute a single line or sentence to the Constitution. On the adjournment of the convention, its records and papers were placed under seal and the obligation of secrecy was set upon its members. When ultimately the seals were broken and the package was opened, more than thirty years afterwards, the draft of Pinckney was not found. John Quincy Adams, then Secretary of State, applied to Pinckney for a copy, and he, on the 30th of December, 1818, sent to the Secretary of State the duplicate, or copy of the draft, now in the Department of State. The document was published and remained unquestioned until, in 1830, six years after the death of Pinckney, it came, or was brought, to the attention of Madison, and he, at different times, wrote to at least four persons concerning it, and also prepared a statement which was subsequently published with it in Gilpin's edition of Madison's Journal and in Eliot's Debates, and then the Pinckney draft slept unnoticed in constitutional publications until a review in the columns of The Nation awakened an interest in Mr. Worthington C. Ford, and he, in 1895, published the letter which accompanied the draft when it was placed in the State Department. Nevertheless, if the copy in the Department is identical in terms, or substantially identical in terms, with the paper which Pinckney presented to the Convention, then Charles Pinckney contributed more of words and provisions to the Constitution of the United States 
than any other man. And this draft so prepared by him was so largely adopted in a silent way that the law student who might chance to read it, not knowing of the comment of Madison and its rejection by all commentators, would be tempted to speak of the Constitution of the United States as the Constitution of Pinckney. The reason why the Pinckney draft has received so little attention, and he has received no credit at all for what apparently is an extraordinary piece of constitutional work, can be readily explained. The statement of Madison is written in temperate and guarded terms, and it is manifest that he was careful to speak with courtesy of Pinckney, and to furnish an explanation in the nature of a bridge over which the friends of Pinckney, then deceased, might retreat. But what he does say instantly brings the reader's mind to the conclusion that the paper in the State Department is not the paper, that it is not a substantial copy of the paper which was before the convention. Story had been appointed by Madison and it was not for Story to accept what Madison rejected, and Story was so great a man, so great a judge and commentator, that it was not for lesser men to reverse him. Madison's comment, and Story's silence, have united to condemn the draft so effectively that while printed and reprinted it has been as unnoted as if it had never been written. The final judicial edict of George Bancroft expressed the general judgment when he wrote of the original draft which was actually before the convention, no part of it was used and no copy of it has been preserved. Moreover, Madison is too great an authority to be lightly questioned, the highest authority that exists concerning the proceedings of the convention, and he asserts and undertakes to demonstrate that the one paper cannot be a true copy of the other. He designates provisions which he says originated in the convention and could not have been predetermined by Pinckney, and still more conclusively, as he thinks, he points to the fact that the paper in the department contains provisions to which Pinckney was himself opposed, provisions against which he spoke and voted in the convention. Here Madison builds his bridge. Mr. Pinckney, he suggests, furnished this copy many years after the event, nearly thirty-two years, after he had become an old man and the record of events had faded in his memory, and probably, as the work of the convention went on, he had used a copy of his draft as a memorandum and had interlined in it provisions which the convention framed and when he sent the copy to the Secretary of State he had forgotten this, or had gradually come to regard the interlined matter as his own. A writer like Story, with the training of a lawyer and a judge, on finding the authenticity of the copy impeached in part, would be almost certain to exclude it wholly from the consideration of the jury. Historical analysis and research may, nevertheless, render that clear which is obscure, and show us where the work of Pinckney begins and ends. There are some extrinsic facts which hitherto unknown should be noted. In the first place, this letter of Pinckney anticipates one of Madison's criticisms, 
and explains away his strongest point. It may be necessary to remark, he says, that very soon after the convention met, I changed and avowed candidly the change of my opinion on giving the power to Congress to revise the state laws in certain cases, and in giving the exclusive power to the Senate to declare war, thinking it safest to refuse the first altogether and vest the latter in Congress. Hunts Madison, 3, page 22. As to one of these things concerning which Pinckney says he changed his mind after the convention met, the power of Congress to revise the laws of the states, the assertion is not sustained by Madison's record of the proceedings. He undoubtedly did change his mind, but not until after the adjournment of the convention. There was, however, another provision in his draft to which his assertion would apply. Concerning it, he did change his mind, and avowed candidly the change of his opinion, and did so very soon after the convention met. This is the provision which declares that members of the lower house shall be chosen by the people of several states. Article 3. As early as the 6th of June, he proposed that they should be chosen by the legislatures of the several states. Writing thirty-two years after the event, and when the record had faded in his memory, the two things, to use Madison's words, were not separated by his recollection. The letter is a contemporaneous declaration, given at the moment when he produced the document and placed it on file in the Department of State, that the copy, like the original, contained provisions which he opposed in the convention. With this contemporaneous notice to the Secretary of State, one of Madison's objections, which at first seemed insuperable, if it does not fall to the ground, at least becomes susceptible of explanation, and the retention in the copy of the draft of these apparently inconsistent things, accompanied at the time, as they were, by Pinckney's declaration, not only removes the objection of Madison, but tells strongly in favor of the draft being what Pinckney represented it to be. In the second place, Pinckney speaks of having several rough drafts of the Constitution, four or five drafts, he says, and he adds that they are all substantially the same, differing only in words and the arrangement of the articles. Pinckney had preserved them certainly until the end of the year 1818, and numerous notes and papers which he had retained relating to the federal convention. He also says that, with the aid of the journal of the convention and the numerous notes and memorandums I have preserved, it would now be in my power to give a view of the almost insuperable difficulties the convention had to encounter, and of the conflicting opinions of the members, and I believe I should have attempted it had I not always understood Mr. Madison intended it. He alone possessed and retained more numerous and particular notes of the proceedings than myself. These numerous notes and memorandums, more numerous and particular than those preserved by any other person, Madison alone accepted, and with them 
the several rough drafts which he found with the other papers on his return to charleston in eighteen eighteen existed when pinckney wrote his letter and placed his copy of the draft in the state department they existed both to refresh his memory and to refute him if he was not acting in good faith he acknowledged madison to be his superior in notes and memorandums and a particular knowledge of the proceedings of the convention and madison was still living and pinckney by placing his copy of the draft in the state department invited madison and all the world to examine it that was the time when madison should have spoken it is most unfortunate that he waited fourteen years and until after pinckney's death and the death of every other member of the convention before he spoke like many another young lawyer i came upon pinckney's draft in elliot's debates and was astounded by finding so large a part of the constitution apparently written by the hand of a man whom i had never heard extolled as a framer of the constitution and like many another young lawyer i accepted the reasons of madison and the silence of story as conclusive but the discovery and publication of pinckney's letter in eighteen ninety five threw new light upon the subject and made it plain that Madison's objections should not be taken as final, and that his premises needed corroboration. I therefore prepared the following inquiries, in the hope that I could persuade some historical scholar to take up the work of constitutional investigation. 1. Does the draft in the State Department upon its face appear to be an author's draft, a rough draft, as Pinckney called it, with his corrections erasures interlineations and alterations or does it appear to be a duplicate or a fair copy of an original or rough draft it is in the handwriting of pinckney does it appear to be his original piece of work or an engrossed copy made by him of another paper two if upon the face of the instrument it appears to be an engrossed copy though in pinckney's handwriting that is a copy of the rough draft with its alterations and corrections engrossed therein then the historical critic must proceed to try the issue of pinckney's truthfulness he tells the secretary of state at the time when he produces the paper that it is impossible for me now to say which of the four or five drafts i have is the one but enclosed i send you the one i believe was it i repeat however that they are substantially the same differing only in form and unessentials if this language be taken literally it means that he is about to place in the archives of the department of state one of those original four or five drafts and as he believes the very one of which he prepared an engrossed copy for the use of the convention if the language be not taken literally it at least means that he sends a true copy of one of the original rough drafts is there anything in the draft to refute either representation does it contain words phrases clauses provisions which certainly did originate in the convention which were ground out there and which could not possibly have been anticipated by pinckney 
as he sat in his study early in 1787, making draft after draft for the consideration of the coming convention? 3. Finally, it will be apparent on reflection that even if all of the foregoing issues should be decided against Pinckney, that is to say, if it should be found that the paper in the State Department is not an original draft, is not one of the four or five drafts to which Pinckney alludes, or that it contains interlineations of which Pinckney could not have been the author, even then, after deciding all doubtful points against him, a great deal will remain which must have been his, and historical criticism and careful analysis will be made to measure this residuum and give us a fair estimate of its value, so that we can know with tolerable certainty how much of the Constitution was the work of Pinckney. As I have not been able to persuade any competent scholar to take up this inquiry, which seems to me to be an inquiry due to the truthfulness of our constitutional history, and to the memory of a framer of the Constitution whose work was not questioned until after his death, I have felt that the work has become a duty, and that the duty has been imposed on me. End of chapter 1